topics and opinions expressed on the following show are solely those of the host and their guests and not those of W4CS Radio, its employees or affiliates. W4CS makes no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Support Network on W4CS.com. Any health-related information on the following show provides general information only. Content presented on any show by any host or guest should not be substituted for a doctor's advice. Always consult your physician before beginning any new diet, exercise, or treatment program. And welcome to Five to Thrive Live. I am Carolyn Gazella, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, Dr. Lise Alshuler. Hello, Lise. Hello, Carolyn. Today is a good day, like every Tuesday. Glad to be here with you. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. You know what? Uh, The weather has just been kind of dreamy. It's a little fall-like here. I know that people hate to hear that because it means that summer's coming to a close, but I am a big fall girl. And it has been dreamy. We're going to get hot again, but boy, it's been wonderful here in Colorado. Yeah, How about you? Well, there's a funny thing, you know, to, yes, last night we had this amazing Midwest storms. The Midwest storms are the best storms anywhere. They are like lightning, kabam, thunder right on its heels. You feel like the thunder and lightning just struck this across the street. It's very exciting and dramatic. I remember that. I remember it well when I lived in the Midwest. And I do, I have to say, I miss those Midwest storms. Um, yeah, weather is cool. You know, I think, I think in another life, I, I'm going to be a weather woman. A weather woman. A weather or you person. could just be a weathered woman. Weather, <laughs> yeah. No, I don't want to be a <laughs> no, weather. Oh, okay. No. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? I would like to remind our listeners that if this is your first time on Five to Thrive Live, we have a website with a ton of information. Uh, five to Thrive Plan dot com. That's all spelled out. Five to Thrive Plan dot com. We also have a new project we're working on that's very very exciting. We are creating an online. Uh, program for cancer survivor that's interactive, personalized. It's super, super cool. It's called I Thrive Plan, and we actually have a website where you can watch a couple of videos and learn a little bit more about it. And then if you sign up, uh, you'll be able to be one of the first to uh, be exposed to the I Thrive Plan. And that website is ithriveplan.com. Yes, we are very excited about that, so I hope you check it out. Well, you know, we had a fantastic show last week. We keep getting emails, actually, throughout the week about uh, that show. People have really responded well to that and want to listen to it again, which people can do on iHeart.com. Last night we had a guest, Mark Nepo. Mark Nepo is considered one of the spiritual leaders of our times. He's a beautiful storyteller and poet, and he talked about the spiritual challenges and opportunities of cancer. 
It was really a lovely show. And as I said, if you missed it, don't worry because you can go to iHeart.com. And once you sign in, just search Five to Thrive Live and you'll find all of our past shows, that one included, to listen to at your convenience. That I know. I just loved that show. And uh, as you mentioned, Mark was just wonderful, wonderful guest. And you know what? Tonight, we have a wonderful guest as well. And we're going to switch gears completely. We're going to talk about something very practical and medical. And I am just so excited to introduce our guest this evening. Our guest is Dr. Bob Roundtree. Dr. Roundtree is a board-certified family practice physician. He received his medical degree from the University of North Carolina and completed his residency at Hershey Medical Center in Pennsylvania. Dr. Roundtree has been practicing in Boulder, Colorado since the early 1980s. He is currently the medical director of Boulder Well Care, where he specializes in individual integrative health care consulting. He has co-authored numerous books and written numerous book chapters on integrative and nutritional medicine. In June of this year, Dr. Roundtree was given the Linus Pauling Functional Medicine Award by the Institute of Functional Medicine, which is a very prestigious award in recognition of his years of mentoring and training healthcare providers. Thank you so much for joining us. Sure. My pleasure. All right. Well, we are going to dive right in because this topic is, wow, what a topic uh, it's going to be hard to cover it all tonight. This has certainly come up on everybody's agenda, not only practitioners, but patients alike. We're going to be talking about intestinal bacteria. And the research about the health impacts of intestinal bacteria is literally exploding. And yet, like most things, the more we learn, the more we realize that, hey, we don't actually know that much. But let's start with some things that we do know. So Dr. Roundtree, how many bacteria do we carry around in our intestines? Well, the current estimate is somewhere around 100 trillion. Oh, geez, <laughs> can, you, that's can you wrap around that number? 100 trillion. I can't, I can't even begin to imagine, but just think of it this way. The human cells number around 10 trillion. So there's okay. 10 times more bacterial cells than there are human cells. There's 10 times more of them than there are of us. It's another number that really that just gets me. Humans have about 20,000 genes in their DNA. When you count the number of genes that the bacteria have in our guts and on our skin and our nose and our lungs, it numbers somewhere between 3.5 million and 9 million. Whoa. So there's this massive number of amount of genetic material that's covering our bodies and, you know, covering our intestinal tract compared to the number of genes that we have. So a lot more microbial genes than there are human genes. Wow, that always just amazes me. And and now, obviously, with so many bacteria in and on our bodies, we must have evolved in a way that makes these bacteria beneficial. And, And I know that there are so many of these bacteria are in the intestines or the gut. Let's let's start Let's start there. What role do our intestinal friendly or what's known as commensal bacteria have on digestion? Well, we can't really digest our food without them. That's really the simple answer to that is that we rely on them to help break down carbohydrates and and fats and proteins um, because they're making enzymes, right? So, you know, without them... um, all havoc can break loose. <laughs> it's a simple way to put it. Um, and it starts from birth. I mean, babies that are breastfed, 
develop bacteria that are specific for breaking down the sugars in breast milk. Right? So the, mm-hmm. you hear about bifidobacteria in infants. Those bifidobacteria specialize in, in breaking down the sugars in breast milk. And that's kind of where it all begins. Then as we expand our diet, we develop this ability to, to digest the foods that we're eating. Now, this is, this is pretty interesting because they've studied the intestinal bacteria of people that have vastly different diets. Like there was one study where they compared people in England and I think Italy to kids in Africa. And the, the kids in, in, uh, in Europe had bacteria that were specialized to eat, I guess what you would call as a crappy diet, you know, <laughs> to eat a lot of like processed foods and fats, etc. The kids in Africa had the ability to digest wood. They, they, you know, they were, their stomachs look, their intestines look like those of termites. <laughs> wow. Because they had, they had these enzymes that you and I probably don't even have, you know, that allow them to eat fiber. If you think about it, the diets of these kids were, you know, con- composed of a lot of grains that they would go grind up on a stone, right? And it was full of not just the grain, but the insects and everything else that happened to be there. So their bacteria evolved along with that diet and probably has evolved over tens of thousands of years. The bacteria we have in our intestines have evolved over thousands of years to do what they do. The other thing we know about those bacteria is that they're very involved in detoxification. So, you know, if you get environmental toxins uh, along with the healthy foods in your diet, you're, you're picking up certain toxins, those bacteria are involved in breaking those down. Right. So... Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. I'm just sitting here listening because I, I know this as a, as a practitioner myself, and yet just hearing you repeat it, it's still a marvel. It really is a marvel. It's such an, an intimate relationship, really, that is absolutely integral to our ability to, to get nutrition out of our diet. So, so we have a question already for you, which is from our chat uh, room, which it, we actually have several questions. So uh, one question is when... People stop eating a certain type of food, or let me broaden that a little bit. So let's say somebody's diet changes. Yep. Do the bacteria that ate that food die off and new ones just automatically replace, or what happens? Well, we know that, um, that the, the gut bacteria can change within a few days, and there's several studies that have shown this. There was one study where they took strict vegetarians and they put them on an all-meat diet. Can you believe that? They, I mean, they talked them into eating meat and cheese. Um, and within three days, there were dramatic changes in their bacteria. And the, the bacteria that were normally present to digest all those fibers, etc. I don't know if they died off, but they definitely dropped in number. Right? So it's all a matter of, of the relative amounts of these species. Um, on the other hand, they switched people that had been eating an all-meat diet to a a vegetarian diet, and the same thing happened. There were dramatic shifts in bacteria. So they probably are not dying off. They just are either going dormant or they're dropping down in numbers. Now, here's something to keep in mind. It's not just the bacterial species. It's the genes that are being expressed in those bacteria. So it may be that there isn't even that much of a change um, in the types of bacteria as it is that, uh, you know, the genes that, that make the enzymes that break down certain fibers or carbs, those genes get activated. 
Um, there was one study where they put people on a Dr. Oz smoothie program, you know, a kale smoothies and that sort of thing. And there were certain species of bacteria that just went crazy within two or three days, you know, rapid increases in, in bacteria that help build good mucus. One was called Ackermansia mucinophila, right? Who's ever heard of that? We've been really focused on lactobacilli and bifido for years and thinking those are the good ones, but there's a lot of other really good bacteria that actually start to increase when you eat a diet that's high in fiber and vegetables. Yeah, that you know, it is. It's kind of amazing, and we have another question in the chat room um, regarding the healthy ratio between the good and the harmful, between the commensal and the harmful bacteria. Is there a ratio that we have identified? Well, there's a lot of research that's been done on this balance between two major groups of bacteria: the Bacteroidetes and Firmicutes. Um, you know, the reason there's been this focus on it is because the, the initial thought was, well, maybe this plays a role in obesity. Maybe if people have uh, too much firmicutes, then they're more efficient at breaking down carbs, and so they get more, they extract more calories from their food. Um, and, and certainly they've done studies in rats looking at that ratio, and they've been able to take uh, obese rats and take a sample of their stool and put it into thin rats, and the thin rats get obese, right? So the initial thought was maybe it was just these two groups. But, you know, when, you, when you're talking about these groups of bacteria, there's a lot of different bacteria within each group. So I, I kind of hate to tell you that it's turning out not to be as simple as we hoped. Um, there probably are certain bugs that, um, or, you know, we use bug as a, as a slang term for microbes, there may be certain microbes that do play a role in obesity, but we haven't identified what those are yet. So it's not turning out to be as as simple to identify those as we thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is clearly a very complex ecosystem, really, so it's hard to sort of be too reductionist about it because we yep. miss the bigger picture. But um, And actually, one aspect of that ecosystem is the really, I think, fascinating relationship between the bacteria in our intestines and our own immune systems. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, it's been said that something like 70% of all our immune cells lie in our gut. And that makes sense because that's where our immune system is most exposed to the outer world, right? I mean, that's we're, we're in the course of a lifetime, a person eats, what, a ton of food, literally? Um, and so we're constantly analyzing the foods that come down our intestinal tract and trying to figure out, is this friendly or is it a foe? Well, that whole scenario evolves in the first year of life where the immune cells that are lining the gut are looking at what's surrounding them, and what's surrounding them is the gut bacteria. And those gut bacteria are actually responsible for programming the immune cells. And not just the immune cells that are lining the gut, but actually the immune cells of the entire body, which is why there's such concern about antibiotics, because there's studies now showing that, you know, when you give kids antibiotics in the first year of life, you can disrupt the balance of bacteria in the gut for years, if not permanently. And that's been linked to inflammatory bowel disease, allergies, and rheumatoid arthritis. 
Mm, yeah. I mean, it, it's, and I have to say, we have quite a, a busy chat room here. So I'm going to ask a, a question from the chat room next, uh, Dr. Roundtree. Um, this is something kind of foundational. Where do the new bacteria, the new good bacteria come from? Well, starting in the first year of life, we get them from our mother, right? So it depends. Um, <laughs> there's a, a guy named Rob Knight who's here at CU Boulder, who's one of the top um, researchers on, on the microbiome, and he has this saying in one of his books uh, that vaginal uh, microbes determine our destiny. But mm. Let that one sink in for a minute, you know. So if a baby is born by normal, spontaneous vaginal delivery, that is going to set up the microbes that are going to affect that kid possibly the rest of the child's life. If a kid is born by cesarean section, what kind of bacteria do you think that kid's going to have in his or her intestines? Uh, the kid's going to have bacteria that resemble the mother's skin and the skin of the hospital workers that were involved in delivering the baby. Even if everybody's wearing gloves and they're trying to be sterile, you know what? There's no such thing as a purely sterile environment. So the, the initial bacteria we get, we get from birth. And then the rest of them come from the foods that we eat. We like to think that our food is sterile, even if we're eating food that, um, you know, it's, it comes from a garden, right? And you've cooked it. And you think, oh, there's no bacteria in there. What? No, there's study after study now has shown that every time you eat, you pick up bacteria from the food. Um, and here's a thought. When you walk through the woods, you're breathing bacteria that is in the air in the woods. Mm-hmm. And those bacteria come into your lungs and they get in your system. When you walk by the sea and you breathe the spray of the, of the salt air, Every drop of seawater has, what, 10 million viruses in it and a million bacteria. One drop of seawater, a million bacteria. So my point is that the, the, our planet is alive with these bacteria, and we're eating them, we're breathing them, you know, we're, we're taking them into our system all the time. And so it's not just that we have this little tank of bacteria in our gut that's all ours. There's this constant interchange that's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which again is why it's such a, a fascinating and complex subject. It's so really all-encompassing. Kind of on a, a, a little bit of a related tangent, this comes from our chat room, but I think it's relevant to what you just said because there's a new variable that, that we've introduced into this ecosystem um, within the last couple of decades, and that's genetically modified foods. And although I know there's not a lot of research on the impact on the microbiome, do you have any thoughts on how that might impact this, given what you said about how much genetic material these microbes contain? Well, uh, the companies that make these genetically modified foods are really fond of saying that those genes don't move around. Um, But I think there's uh, some pretty good data that that's actually not true at all. Um, you know, for example, the BT corn, Bacillus thuringiensis corn, is genetically modified so that it makes a bacterial toxin. And that toxin has actually been found in the intestines of people that eat that corn. And there was even one study that showed that it, in, in pregnant women that were eating that corn, that it was circulating uh, in their bloodstream. 
So, you know, if you think about the, the early stages of evolution, it was one big gene swap, you know, it was um, water, salt water that was full of all these primitive bacteria, and they were swapping genes all the time. Well, it turns out the same thing is going on in our intestines. It's not that bacteria evolve and get new genes the way we think of in conventional evolution. Instead, our bacteria are swapping genes with other bacteria and with viruses and with fungi all the time. So why wouldn't we be able to pick up on these genes that have been inserted into plants like soybeans? In fact, those genes were specifically identified because they can be inserted into plants. So why would we think that they can't move around in our intestines? I, I have to say, I think we've made a big mistake by investing so heavily in GMO foods without doing a heck of a lot more research on them. I, I'm really concerned about, you know, how quickly they've been adopted. And I'm not saying that, you know, we've got some solid evidence that, that GMO foods are dangerous. Um, I'm just concerned about what those foods are doing to the whole planet. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Uh, I know we have some significant concerns as well. Concerns as well. Um, now, back to the subject at hand. We've talked about bacteria and how it impacts digestion. We've talked about how bacteria uh, impacts the immune system. Can the bacteria in our digestive tract affect brain function or mood? Yeah, I think there's some pretty solid evidence that that's that's the case. Um, you know, pinning down the one-to-one relationship um, is is not that easy, but there is some very general evidence that suggests, for example, if the bacteria in our gut, um, or let's say the specific mix of a bacteria in an individual's gut, if those bacteria are hungry for certain nutrients, they can actually uh, secrete chemicals that direct us, that, that control our behavior, so that we'll eat more of those foods. Is that? I think that's mind-boggling. Do you think that's mind-boggling? Yeah, I do. Um, yes. You know, the bacteria, they, they're directing our behavior. I mean, think about it this way. The, you, you know, we know about the neurotransmitters, about serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine. The bacteria in our gut actually make neurotransmitters. Amazing. They make neurotransmitters, and so these bacteria have the capability of influencing, you know, the way we feel and the and our specific actions. They can direct us to eat certain foods. They can make us hungry by making chemicals that that mimic the same thing that would happen if your blood sugar dropped. Right? They can fool us into thinking our blood sugars drop. So I, I certainly think that there's a huge future in dealing with mood disorders by giving people probiotics or putting them on certain diets. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do this well, but I heard a presentation recently that was talking, and you might interrupt me and fill me in if you know what I'm, as I start this, if you can do it better than me. But there's a bacteria that um, when it, it's found on some food that, that rats and mice eat, and when they eat it, it it directs their brains and it causes their brains to change in a way that the rats and mice become very sluggish, and which facilitates the ability of feline animals like cats to catch them. 
And when they catch them, it sort of completes a, a oh no, that's a, a, I think maybe it's a parasite. And it, uh, it allows the cat to then um, eat the rat and completes the cycle of the parasite. So it's a little bit different than a bacteria, but same kind of concept that these little microbes really can be very smart in a kind of scary way. <laughs> well, actually, so, uh, that parasite that you're talking about, um, mm-hmm. it, so, so th- there's, uh, let me back up. Mice have a very deep program in their brain to avoid cat urine, right? They don't have to learn that. Mice are born with this this built-in mechanism that says cat urine is to be avoided at all costs because if you smell cat urine, you're going to be eaten. Um, And this particular parasite, when it gets into mice, it hijacks the reward system in the brain so that those mice will actually be drawn towards cat urine. Mm. And so when they smell cat urine, they run towards it and they get eaten. So the parasite is actually directing the mice to do a behavior that will actually allow the parasite to be transmitted because cats are the natural vector. Yeah. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, mm-hmm. that was much. You yeah. said that much better than I. <laughs> and, and and the interesting thing is, a lot of humans have been shown to be um, asymptomatic carriers, and and it's been shown that when you, if you can find evidence of this parasite, and I'm totally, I can't believe it. I'm totally blanking on the name of it right now. But um, if if you've got this in your system. Um, then it can affect your behavior to make you more irritable and impulsive. Hmm. And then more people commit suicide when they have this in their system. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just so fascinating. So, yeah, related, not exactly bacteria, but certainly somewhat related, and I think it sort of illustrates the power of of these relationships that have evolved over over much time. So... Um, oh, I, I just remembered it's called toxoplasma. Yeah, there you go. Toxoplasmosis. Good job. You know, and Good job. They tell pregnant women, don't clean the cat litter because you might get toxoplasmosis. That's right. And that will affect your fetus. But, mm-hmm. you know, a lot more of us have toxoplasma than we know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've kind of touched on some of the connections between that. There's one more I want to ask you about before we start really drilling down some, to, into some of the more uh, kind of practical aspects of this. But... Um, what or is there a relationship between bacteria in our intestines and joint pain and inflammation? Well, it's been known for years that certain bacteria can actually trigger an inflammatory um, joint reaction um, that, that looks like rheumatoid arthritis. So, you know, we've known that since I was in medical school, which was uh, longer ago than I care to admit. <laughs> um, but, you know, we've known that people would get uh, infections with a bacteria called Yersinia um, and then could get a flare-up of, of, uh, of joint pain uh, after they got that bacteria. Um, so that's taken us in two directions. One is looking to see whether there might be some specific bacteria that could be the trigger for autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. And there is evidence from a lot of different angles that suggest there may be some very specific bacteria that, that do trigger this inflammatory reaction. But at the same time, there's research showing that, you, as I mentioned earlier, when you give antibiotics to kids, there's 
uh, more uh, of an increased likelihood of the kid developing juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And that takes us in another direction. That suggests that maybe wiping out certain bacteria makes the system more susceptible to inflammation. Does that make sense? So there, mm-hmm. there might be some bacteria that are actually peacekeepers in the gut. Mm-hmm. And taking antibiotics wipes out the peacekeepers. And then it isn't so much that one bacteria comes in and sets off a reaction as it is that, that all the bad guys can start to accumulate. And then without the peacekeepers to keep things under control, that causes just enough inflammation from the whole group of bacteria, not just one bacteria, to cause a problem. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So basically what we're talking about is bacterial balance. And when there's mm-hmm. an imbalance and there's more harmful bacteria than good bacteria, that's where we run into trouble. And that's where we can have issues, a, a broad range of issues, digestive issues, immune system issues, mood issues, foggy brain, inflammation, joint pain. All of these things are systemically related to this balance of bacteria in our gut. Well, I first heard about this notion of dysbiosis, you know, D-Y-S-B-I-O-S-I-S, which means disordered life. Um, I first heard about that from one of my mentors, Leo Galland, about 30 years ago. And when Leo started talking about this, people, uh, at least the mainstream doctors, poo-pooed it. They said, oh, that's quackery. You know, what, what are you talking about, dysbiosis? Because at the time, everybody still thought in terms of, individual bad bacteria, you know, if you got salmonella or shigella or giardia as a parasite or something like that, then that's what you need to watch out for is these individual bad bugs. Um, But we didn't know that much about the healthy bugs in the gut. Now Leo's work has been totally vindicated, and you can't really pick up a, a gastroenterology medical journal now without seeing articles about dysbiosis. So it's a completely accepted notion that if you get an imbalance, which we call dysbiosis, then that's what causes the problem. It's not so much one bad bug. It's the whole balance of bacteria. Right. Well, on that note, it is time for our first quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Roundtree, and we're going to talk about what to do about dysbiosis, both how to prevent it and how to um, manage it, some management considerations. So you'll want to stay tuned, and we will be right back. We are constantly being bombarded by toxins in the air we breathe, water we drink, and even the foods we eat. So what's the answer? Glutathione. It's inside every cell in your body and protects you from the damage of oxidative stress and toxins. There is a special patented form of glutathione that is superior called Cetria. Cetria is pure, vegetarian, and allergen-free. Help replenish your body's reserves of this very important nutrient, detoxified in a natural way. Visit cetriaglutathione.com. That's cetriaglutathione.com. Are 
Are you interested in boosting your brain power? So am I. This is Carolyn Gazella, co-host of 5 to Thrive Live, and I'm here to tell you about a supplement that I take. The human brain needs a lot of nutrition to stay focused throughout the day. Citicoline naturally enhances energy-producing centers within the brain. Cognizant delivers a clinically tested, patented form of citicoline that supplies your brain with the energy it needs to stay sharp. Look for Cognizant on the label, or for more information, visit Cognizant.com. That's Cognizant.com. Live. I am Carolyn Gazella, and I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Lise Allshuler. And tonight, we're having a great conversation with Dr. Bob Roundtree about intestinal bacteria and bacterial balance. I want to remind listeners that we'd love to have you join this conversation, and you have been joining this conversation in our chat room. It's located in the bottom right-hand corner of the website. Feel free to type in your question or comment. Yes, indeed, and I get the first question when we as we're coming back. So, Dr. Roundtree, let's switch gears now and talk a little bit about um, how we're, we, kind of generally speaking, are attempting to manage the situation and and really infuse as much health into into our intestinal ecosystem as possible. I want to start with the the idea of supplementing probiotics, which are. Uh, beneficial bacteria that have been encapsulated and people take as a supplement. Can this ever be harmful? Well, it can be harmful, but only in fairly rare situations. I think there's uh, been a couple of studies showing that people who have very suppressed immune systems um, can sometimes actually have these bacteria get in their bloodstream and have that cause a problem. I think there's, uh, there's some studies showing that people that have had intestinal surgery uh, can get into problems afterwards, but I have to stress that that's fairly rare, um, you know, because the, mostly the bacteria that are used in probiotics, the the strains in, used in probiotics are, you know, they were selected because they're known to be pretty benign, mm, you know. Yeah. So I, I think if you've got an individual who's who has a severe immune problem, if they had HIV that's not been completely treated, you know, or they've they've uh, say they had leukemia and they uh, are on uh, chemotherapy and their immune system is knocked out, then those individuals need to be careful. Um, of course, that's often a scenario where you might want to use probiotics as a person who's had cancer chemotherapy and they're getting diarrhea from the, um, from the cancer chemotherapy. Can you use probiotics? I would say yes, but cautiously. Mm-hmm. Well, it's good. So now we've established that probiotic supplements in general are fairly safe. So let's yep. dig into like how we use them. And you mentioned strains. Are there particular strains that we should look for in our supplement? And, and another kind of tag on to that is um, how how do you normally prescribe probiotic supplements? How How does one take those? Well, let's just, first of all, the, the, the long story about probiotics is that they were derived from an observation that people that ate fermented foods seemed to have better health. And there was a guy around the turn of the last century named Metchnikoff that was very big on it. He had a famous saying that death begins in the colon. 
And, you know, he was very big on having people eat probiotic foods. And, of course, years later we identified those as lactobacilli. Um, so that was kind of the first round of probiotics. And then later we identified bifidobacteria as other strains. And then um, later to that armamentarium was added healthy yeast. Saccharomyces boulardii, which are related to the same yeast that are used to make uh, beer and bread, um, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So the boulardii is a is a subtype of that. Um, so I use all of those strains regularly. Um, I've gotten into a number of debates with people over the years whether fermented foods do the same thing. Well, I think fermented foods are great, um, and I do recommend them. I think. You know, for somebody who's generally healthy and wants to to maintain intestinal health, then fermented foods are fine. Um, but you know, there's certainly individuals that develop the dysbiosis that we talked about, and those people need something a little bit more potent. Um, it's really a, a big question of of how much do you give? You know, for healthier individuals, I think you can use relatively low doses of these strains of lactobacilli or bifidobacteria, um, but uh, when you move up the scale of pathology to a point where a person has inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis, those people need sometimes several hundred billion bacteria a day. So, you know, again, there's so many strains out there, I can't even keep track of them right now, um, but... You know, there's there's a number of good commercial products that people can choose from. I think the the amount of the bacteria really depends on on what's wrong with the person. So a healthy person, I might prescribe something that's got five billion of a mix of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria. Now, if uh, if that person has ulcerative colitis, I, then I'm more likely to give 400 to 900 billion which is a lot. Everybody doesn't need that, right? But if, if you've got severe dysbiosis or you're wiped out, uh, your intestinal bacteria are wiped out, then you may need that. The Saccharomyces are particularly helpful for people who are taking antibiotics because this is a yeast that is going to be resistant to typical antibiotics. So I use them a lot um, in, in people that get antibiotics for any reason at all. I think if we if we routinely prescribe Saccharomyces boulardii um, to people getting antibiotics, we would prevent all kinds of problems with antibiotic-associated colitis. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would fully agree with that. So um, I want to ask you, actually, first I want to say there was a question in our chat room about some other resources for people, and I want to uh, put in a plug for a great book that my wonderful co-host, uh, wrote, which is a book called Boost Your Health with Bacteria by Carolyn oh. Gazella. So um, encourage people to check that out. And um, I want to go back because there's a question about this um, potentially safe safety issue with, with low white blood cell count. And being a, in the specialty of oncology, that's certainly a concern yep. that I have. You know, there's been a few reported cases of people actually getting an infection from healthy bacteria when their white blood cell count is below normal range. Um, yep. Do you would you say that's sort of the that's the cutoff I I use? I'm wondering if that's kind of the same cutoff that you use, or if you have other nuances around that. The cutoff of a specific number of bacteria? You mean like a no, thousand white blood counter? Yeah, the number of bac. Uh, if in other words, when people's white count goes below normal range, is when caution should be taken. 
Well, it depends on how far below normal. I mean, a normal white count is, what, 3,200 or so at the low end, 3,200, 3,600. So if somebody's below 1,000, then I probably wouldn't use probiotics in that case. Okay, you know, good. but that's uh, oh, I mean, I assume that person's working with an oncologist, and that's the kind of scenario where you'd you'd certainly want to confer with the oncologist. But I wouldn't use, um, I wouldn't use probiotics in people with a white count that low. If it's two thousand, I'm not so worried. Okay, all right, fair enough. Thank you. And now, Dr. Rontree, you mentioned fermented foods that will help. Uh, boost the good bacteria. From a dietary standpoint, are there foods that we eat that actually encourage the bad bacteria? Well, I think processed foods. I mean, any, you know, sugars, bad bacteria love sugar. So this is the same dietary principles that we've been talking about since the days of Hippocrates. You know, if you, if you eat junk food, then that is going to induce the growth of unhealthy bacteria. So the the more processed food you eat, yeah, I mean, processed food is pretty lifeless. And I was saying that, that food is not sterile, but, you know, a bag of potato chips, that's about as close to sterile as you get. <laughs> um, whereas if you're, if you're eating, you know, raw salads um, or lightly steamed broccoli, you're getting healthy bacteria and you're also getting prebiotics which are fertilizer for your bacteria from those foods. So, yeah, the, you know, processed foods are the, probably the worst thing you can do for enhancing gut diversity. Right, good. So we've been talking a lot about this gut diversity or this this eubiosis, this balanced bacteria. Mm-hmm. So some of our listeners may be curious about, well, gosh, I wonder if I have imbalanced bacteria or intestinal dysbiosis. How would they determine that or is there a way that they that they can test should they go see a practitioner give us a little insight um well there are now several commercial labs that will do this testing and it really depends on how deep you want to get into it um i use genova diagnostics a lot um they're based in uh in Asheville, north carolina and they do a genetic based test of the stool bacteria to see uh how much diversity is there how much abundance there are of different groups, whether there's any particular uh, unhealthy bacteria that might stand out. So that is a useful test because it's designed for, um, you know, determining what the impact is on overall uh, illness. Um, If you really want to get into it, there's a company called Ubiome, and the website is just like it sounds. It's ubiome.com. Um, and uh, I forget exactly how much it costs to do a sample with them, but, you know, they do a much more comprehensive analysis than Genova, um, you know, and they, they will actually test different sites in your body. So I sent mine in out of curiosity. Um, you, you just do a swab of whatever area you want to check, and, you know, you can do mouth and you can do gut, you can do skin, and then they give you a very comprehensive analysis of what's going on. So that, for people who are geeks in this that really want the data, um, I would stir, uh, send them to that direction. Yeah, that's great. You know, and I, I would just add to that that um, I think that, as you said earlier, using probiotics is generally safe and probably mm-hmm. beneficial. Mm-hmm. But for people who have uh, a serious health issue and are trying to treat that issue through their gut, that's, I think, really a good time to see an integrative healthcare practitioner who can guide that understanding and come up with kind of a more comprehensive and targeted plan. 
Well, it can be good to have some precision there. I mean, you can. It certainly doesn't hurt to try things like prebiotics and and over-the-counter probiotics. But again, a practitioner who's trained in this, they can do the testing. You know, they can then say, well, you need to be on this very specific diet for a while. Um, so you may save yourself some time. You know, going that route rather than trying it all on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now there's another uh, great question in the chat room. We have a lot of great questions in the chat room, and this is related to candida. What's the connection between candida and bad bacteria? And and I, I'm curious, would uh, probi- probiotics be indicated in, in cases of candida? Yeah, you know, we've changed our thinking about that a little bit. I mean, it used to be Anytime somebody had an intestinal problem, we just assumed it was candida or some other kind of yeast. And, you know, that uh, that was certainly, um, you know, based on the best data we had at the time, we would do a stool culture um, or a microscopic and we would find the yeast. And we didn't know, you know, about these hundred trillion other bacteria. So we, we, we focused less on the dysbiosis and more, you know, this this yeast overgrowth. And so... I think a lot of people were diagnosed with yeast overgrowth syndrome that probably didn't have it. Um, that's not to say it isn't real. Um, and what we do know is that when people take multiple courses of antibiotics, that yeast definitely occur in that scenario. All I'm saying is it's probably a more complicated scenario than we thought. Um, now, you know, what about using probiotics when people have confirmed? Because I, there are ways we can confirm it. Doing a stool analysis is still... A, a helpful thing to do and you know the, the whole idea is that you don't necessarily want to wipe out yeast because they're a normal resident of our intestinal tract that's really the point I'm trying to make is it's we're, we're thinking more in terms of imbalance of not just bacteria but bacteria viruses and yeast so you want to restore balance and, and probiotics are a really good way to do that but you can also use yeast like Saccharomyces boulardii um, you know, some people have called that strategy yeast against yeast. Um, now, I, I just saw a really fascinating study of people in intensive care units that are just bombarded with antibiotics and all kinds of other drugs. They did stool analyses on these people, and some of them were down to only one or two species of bacteria and several species of really bad yeast. Mm. Right, and they said it's it was kind of an amazing situation because sometimes they would have no intestinal symptoms, but then one thing would go wrong, and suddenly their septic and these bad bacteria would take over, and a person could get sick and die in a very short period of time. And the implication was that if those people had been getting probiotics as part of their treatment, it could have prevented that whole scenario. So instead of waiting, you know, until the bad yeast just totally take over or the bad bacteria take over, maybe those people in the ICU should have been getting probiotics all along. Right. Yes, absolutely. So you obviously have a lot to say about bacteria, and I want to give you the chance to just share anything else that you would like our listeners to know. Well, what can I say? Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of the area that I've been interested in is the parallel and how biodiversity on our planet has been declining. You know, how we're, we're losing sea life. We're losing life in the forest. Our soils are getting depleted from uh, overuse of things like Roundup and fertilizers. And that actually parallels a loss of the diversity of bacteria in our gut. And, and the more we can encourage diversity in our lives in every way, shape, or form, 
the healthier we're going to be and the healthier our planet is going to be. So eating a diverse mix of, of fruits and vegetables every day, eating prebiotics like fructooligosaccharides and inulin, um, arabinogalactans and, and taking probiotics, all that encourages diversity in our gut. And it also kind of creates this mentality that we want to encourage in people is, is to support biodiversity uh, in every way we can. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, and we did have a question in the chat room about past shows. Just a reminder that you can find past shows on our website, 5tothriveplan.com. And you can also go to iheart.com and search for 5 to Thrive Live and you will find us. Dr. Roundtree, this has been a wonderful show. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Lots of great information. Yes, You bet. It's indeed. been a thrill. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. We certainly did. And listeners, you don't want to miss, you do not want to miss next week's show. We have two guests with us. We have Dr. Melissa Coates and Lanny Smith, and they are going to be talking about using creativity to support emotional healing. Absolutely. I love this topic. Love it, love it, love it. Can't wait. Um, and remember uh, to check out our new website, ithriveplan.com. There's a couple little videos on there, short videos that you're going to love. Check it out and sign up at ithriveplan.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter by typing in 5 to Thrive. So enjoy the rest of your evening and may you experience joy, laughter, and love. Okay, Lise, what time is it? It's time to thrive. Have a great night, everyone. <laughs>